welcome back to your favorite holiday season podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. My name is Stephanie Brimhall, and I am the Education Manager with the Kansas City Symphony. I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor. And I'm Mike Orden, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. Well, today we're talking with one of the most successful and versatile young American composers, Nico Muley. Nico has written operas, film scores, chamber music, you name it. And in fact, the San Francisco Symphony just premiered a work of his via video, which I'm really excited for us to talk about here in a few minutes. That's right, Mike. And you know, for a composer, having your work premiered by any major orchestra at any time is a huge achievement. But as orchestras have struggled during coronavirus times to find ways to safely perform, seeing and hearing this new work is especially meaningful and impressive. As a matter of fact, this entire new work that Nico wrote called Throughline actually uses a group of distanced musicians who recorded their parts separately in different parts of the world, and it is an absolutely fascinating and amazing work. I've watched it three times since it came out uh, just this weekend. The San Francisco Symphony uh, did the premiere of it um, uh, through their local PBS, and now it's available to stream on their website. And we're going to be talking a lot about this great piece with with Nico today. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, actually, in a way, serendipitous. Uh, I happened to reach out to Nico Oh, a couple of months ago, because we thought he would be a fabulous guest on the podcast. And Nico and I actually have a brief childhood connection. Uh, I I played uh, in a trio with Nico for, oh, maybe about a year, half a year. It's got to be at least 25, almost 30 years ago uh, when, we, when we were both. When you were four. Yeah, when we were both pretty little. And uh, it was one of my first chamber music experiences. And uh, I, I remember it fondly. But honestly, you know, we don't really know each other since then. Uh, and, and of course, uh, I've followed Nico's career a bit and I love his music. And it just so happened that uh, coincidentally with the time of uh, doing this podcast, he had this wonderful premiere. So I was watching it uh, the other day. And one of the things that I was just so uh, blown away by the music, the music is amazing. It's so colorful. But um, one of the things that I've really come to appreciate uh, in these times is music that's, you know, that is produced uh, and recorded, you know, to be viewed uh, electronically on, on the internet. And, you know, I'm I'm often not that captivated, honestly, by watching an orchestra play, you know, a Beethoven symphony from one or two cameras, and it's like watching a concert. But this was, I mean, I I don't know how to describe it. You're just going to have to go watch it at some point, but I'm really, really <laughs> excited to talk about it. I'm really excited to have Nico here today. Uh, it's wonderful to see you again after many, many decades. So welcome, Nico Muley. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great great to see you after. It It really might have been something like uh, 25 years. Yeah. So. <laughs> it's in that neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Everybody looks in, the same. You know, every, everything is the same. It's great. Yeah. It's exactly identical. <laughs> totally. <Yeah. laughs> so, of course, in a little bit, we want to we want to kind of get Nico's backstory and, you know, learn all the, the juicy details on how you got to where you are. But I, I think we should just dive right in and, and talk about this project that you you did with the San Francisco Symphony. And I'm, we I, we all have a lot of questions about it. My primary question is, it seems to be, I would assume that it, it is just kind of very serendipitous at this time that this work was commissioned to be performed on a digital platform. And we are in this time where everything is being performed on a digital platform. But when did the commission happen? And... Um, and when did you start working on this? Sure. Um, so, I mean, Throughline has a lot of backstory um, and a lot of complicating factors, which is also a good title for a piece. Um, <laughs> and uh, they, so the San Francisco Symphony emailed me on the 6th of August. Um, and the idea was that the, that the downbeat of the piece would happen on September 20th. So I wrote wow. it incredibly, incredibly no. quickly. That is incredible. Um, <laughs> See, I've been sitting here this whole time thinking that this was a commission that must have happened, you know, a year ago. And no, it's no, just no, no. <laughs> timely for now. That's amazing. No, it, was, it was under a month. So wh- what was what was funny about it was that so they, they wrote with the initial idea that I would write these individual sort of 12 individual minute long kind of baby 
little things, little kind of follies. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I read the email. I thought, I don't know if that's what the world needs is miniatures. And I thought then what I could do, what I counterproposed was to write a single structure that incorporated um, different ensembles in the orchestra and usually sort of impossible ones. So ones that where you get the people closer than they physically in reality. Um, and then also to fold in um, the eight collaborative partners of the, of the symphony, which is a sort of brain trust that Esapeka put together so that what we would have is this kind of conversation between, um, between people who couldn't be in San Francisco. So they were in, you know, Finland or Germany or whatever, um, sort of paired up with these small sextets um, or quintets from symphony musicians. So that was my initial conceit was that I wasn't going to do, you know, minute long miniatures, but was going to make something kind of with a single thrust. Um, and then once I decided on that, then basically it became this giant puzzle of figuring out, um, of figuring out kind of what would be physically possible. Um, and then so, so very quickly it became less about the normal compositional um, restraints, which is to say, you know, how long is the piece? How big is the stage? How, you know, what, what, when do you need the parts? But more, you know, working with personnel, working with stage management, planning out in what order you record things, um, mm -hmm. particularly for intonation purposes. So if you're layering wind players, and there can only be one wind player on the stage at a time on a puppy pad, um, mm -hmm. you know, in what order do you record um let's say a wind sextet so that the intonation makes sense. Right. And how do you sort of Jedi mind trick the flute players to aim sharper? <laughs> and how do you, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that kind That's of work question. Uh, in, in advance. Right. And then also the, you know, the big question is, is, um, you know, how do you, how do you make a piece of orchestra music that, you know, how do you make it not be just chamber music anyway? So those were the initial constraints. Um, and then from there, I just wrote very quickly and, and I'd been having a, I mean, I still am. I mean, this, this is horrible. Like this time is horrible. It's a horrible time to be a musician. It's a horrible time to be a lot of things, but the, I, I had, I hadn't written much. I wrote, you know, two second thing for piano and, you know, a song or so I was actually really excited to, to, you know, have more than more than one instrument on the page, um, so, and which is why I was able to write it so quickly. So one of the things I love about it is relatively uncommon and eclectic use of instruments, even. I mean, you mm -hmm. have the the typical instruments of the orchestra, but, um, you know, there are flutes, but there's also bass flute. Uh, there's um, electric guitar, string bass. bass. Yeah. yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. there, there's all kinds of things that you don't often see together. Uh, people of genres you sometimes don't see together. And I love... Um, I love how you blended those things into a really, you know, coherent piece. Uh, even the, well, thank you. <laughs> even the, even the computer thing. Talk a little bit about the the computer. I, I don't know. Sure. I don't know if computer generated music is the right way to describe it. It's not probably quite, not. No. But <laughs> talk, talk about that a little bit. Okay, so so I should say that the eight collaborative partners, um, we all do very different things. So there's a violinist. Bryce Dessner is a is a well. Every everyone does more than one thing, right? So. Mm -hmm. Pekka Kusisto is a conductor and violinist. Bryce Destner is a guitarist and composer. You know, everyone has different stacks of, of talent. Um, and the the two least conventional, I would say, are Esperanza Spalding, um, who is a composer, improviser, um, vocalist, bass player, and then Carol Riley, who works with artificial intelligence um, and, and robotics and kind of a million other things. And, you know, unfortunately... A project like this um, really would have benefited from me and Esperanza being in more active um, touch or in the same room. Same with Carol, but both of them were in um, places that were really heavily affected by the fires oh. uh, in September. So those two things, I basically had to carve out this middle section that would that would uh, you know then be linked up, kind of the last thing I did. So figuring out how to connect the kind of you know, eighth and ninth movements with the ones before and after. So Carol um, is really interesting. So so what we decided I was going to do was, um, because there are all these little quotations from Bach buried around the place, that I would write for her three lines of counterpoint. So, you know, a high line that's fast, a middle line that's medium, a low line that's slow. And that I would input that into her entity. And so the entity, like, learns the kind of logic of how the music is put together. 
And then it's a handoff between what I notated and then its kind of interpretation of that. So there, so in a sense, in a sense, it learns what it, it, it derives something from, from its interpretation of what I've done and then makes its own thing. So from that, then it spat out a bunch of MIDI, which I then retranscribed for the original instruments and then decided, okay, this is going to be a Celesta. This is going to be um, a bass and this is going to be vibes. And that was more just kind of, uh, I don't want to say arbitrary. It's just like that sound. And um, what was interesting about it is that I had to change one single note, which is there was a G sharp that that should have been, that just sounded crazy. And it was actually a really interesting moral conversation, right, with Carol, where it's like, do you, should you not change it, right? Is it is it the kind of perfect, imperfect moment? Um, and the only, the, I think the, <laughs> the way I got away with it was by saying that, you know, Yes, technically it should be the same thing, but I I really didn't want to make it sound like the vibes player messed up, uh-huh. uh, so I, <laughs> which I felt like a kind of slightly more respectful um, option. I'm so glad you went there because my I mean my question was going to be like when you when you get that music back, how difficult is it as a composer to to not want to go in and adjust you know tweak things to to make it sound the way you want it. I, I love that, that you changed one note and that's it. Yeah. I mean, the, the entity spat out a couple different iterations of it. So um, I kind of chose, mm-hmm. which is interesting because that's actually how I worked with Esperanza as well, which is that she went into the studio and recorded like eight two minute improvisations. And then I kind of, and then from there, I kind of picked the one that I knew I could connect sonically and, um, sonically and kind of musically with the surrounding movements. So the through line between those is, of course, the you have a, her bass, Esperanza's bass, which is preceded by um, the, so, the, the bass, the principal bass of the orchestra, Scott, uh, and then it's followed by a movement that's all low instruments. So that was something that kind of helped, helped me, um, you know, structure it and organize it in a way. And, and you know, whatever it was it was a it was a puzzle no matter what you do well, but and i um, i want to talk yeah. about um esperanza spalding because that was just uh, that moment in the piece is just stunning um stunning she's amazing um but i'm very impressed and intrigued by the idea that you saved her and this you know artificial uh, entity mm. for last in in the way that you did it knowing that you were going to plug them into the middle um it's kind of Star Wars esque, you know, starting with episode right. four, five, yeah. six, and then yeah, going exactly. back and doing one, two, three. Oh, that's just, uh, I don't know that my brain would do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I honestly, I, I would think about it this way where it's like, you know, with, with the two, with the two less, with the two things where I was the least in control, I feel like it's kind of like having a dinner party and you don't know who's bringing like, you know, the soup or something. And then it turns up, you're like, okay, great, great, I can figure out how to make this all like, you know, this <laughs> make this all work. And it, honestly, you know, it's it's not that different from any other um, collaborative work. Like if you're work, working with a choreographer or or something, where you know, there's there's this element of not uncertainty, but but you're reacting to one another um, very quickly. And as I said, you know, this this whole thing got put together like incredibly quickly, and. I just kind of, you know, stayed up all night and dealt with it, <laughs> which is fun. I mean, when's the last time I got to stay up all night? You know, March. <laughs> I know, bedtime now is like 8.30. And it's <laughs> oh, yeah, girl. I mean, I, you don't even know. Like, I'm literally in bed by 8.30. And I have, I, I no, it's like a protest. Like, I don't, if I can't go to, if I can't go to the opera, I'm going to. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> I'm going to sit in bed and read cookbooks. Yeah, exactly. dream of operas to create. Well, Nico, I'm fascinated because um, the through line that you are trying to achieve with this piece, I think, is you really accomplish it. I mean, it sounds like it was all recorded in one place with everyone in the same room. Um, the ideas, the musical ideas passed from one little section to the next is so well done. Talk about, well, thank you. Talk about the, um, how, what, obviously parts of it were recorded live with several musicians in the room and you conducted various parts of it. Um, several other parts, of course, like we already mentioned were recorded individually Talk about the post-production process and how you were involved with that, because that must have been both a nightmare and a thrill at the same time, not just to sync everything up and make it orally seamless, but also visually 
it's a stunning work. So talk about your involvement with the post-production side of things. Cool. I mean, I, I would say that, you know, any any compliments um, about things hanging together, it's like so much is the the team uh, there, the, the people who are, who are filming it, um, Jason um, O'Connell, the, the engineer, and there was so much magic in the production um, where I was sort of driving the car, but it was, it was, um, I'm not sure how to describe this, but it was conducting in in a, in a lot of ways in slow motion, right? Because I had to make these plans and figure out how to make it cohere, but then rely on other people to make this kind of unified visual environment that could be achieved with COVID restrictions, but of a very, very high standard of video quality. So, there, you know, it's a negotiation, right? Because it's like, you've got to figure out, okay, fine, like for the ones that, that I'm conducting, there's a maximum number of 12 people out in the room, but they have five videographers, you know, so, uh, five camera crew. So what we figured out was that all of the soloists were going to record somewhere near where they were at. Um, and that would happen to a click track. And then as much as possible, we would get their audio, you know, to play against in San Francisco. Fires happened. Everything got pushed around. Some of that didn't happen. Some of it we were recording raw to click. Sometimes, you know, so there's a lot of, a lot of, I don't want to say changes, but a lot of, you know, learning on the fly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so the process, the process really was um, almost like scoring a film in that sense where you're, you're just working very quickly and you're, you have a kind of battle plan which, you know, can sometimes change based on the weather. Uh, I, I, as I said, it, it really was like a daily, we would have these kind of combat meetings uh, where we'd say, how, how are we going to do this today? And it wasn't just with orchestra, orchestra, you know, artistic. It was like stage management, personnel, you know, a, 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 the entire ecosystem of the orchestra. And I think, you know, as, as you all know, it's like there, there's the people on stage and then there's an entire world of people who um, run it, really. And it's very, it's, it was a pleasure, I guess, to, to actually fold in that community into this. So there, um, it was, it was, yeah, it was great. And that, that I think is also what makes that orchestra really special was how excellent everyone was at that. And, you know, you can't expect, you can't expect a personnel manager to, to, you know, how to deal with something that complicated where everyone's in, you know, it's, nor can you expect a, uh, stage manager to, to be able to you know really quickly change everything. So it was it was a it was a very it was sort of a concerto grosso for the entire ins the entire institution. I love that. That's awesome. So um, I you know I said at the top uh, how much I enjoyed the fact that it was such a you know an integrated piece of art with the music and the um and the video aspect or component to it and. And of course, when I was watching it, I didn't know yet that you composed it specifically for that. So I was also trying to imagine, you know, what the experience of seeing and hearing this piece would be like, you know, live with everybody in the same place on the same stage. But do you view this as a piece that that can and should be performed live at some point? Or did you really create it solely for this um, this sort of Internet, you know, creation that really can't exist in the physical world exactly as, you know, we all experienced it just now uh, this week. Right. That's a, you know, that's a very good question. And it's, it's one that a lot of people have, have asked about this. And I don't, I don't really know. I mean, I know it would be a nightmare to do it live logistically. I think you would need to do it in an amplified situation. I think it would turn into a kind of stockhausen thing where you'd have to put the little pods of ensembles in different mm -hmm. places on the stage. You know, the, as I said before, it's like a lot of it was built on this idea of like an impossible balance. So even just the first movement, right, that you have, that you have, you know, Glockenspiel, Crotels, Piccolo, um, Harp, Solo Violin, Solo Viola, like that would be so crazy to do in the normal orchestral situation, right? right? So I thought about it and I didn't think about it. I mean, there, you know, I had so much to do <laughs> that, and, 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 you know, and while we were doing it, we were like, wow, it'd be amazing to do this live. And, and sure, yeah, fine. Like, you know. Yes, it would be great to it would be great to do it live, but I also kind of love that it exists in this in this kind of impossible reality. Yeah, I've I've been so interested in this because you know we're all we're all right now trying to figure out how to how to make music, how to share music in this you know bizarre environment that music itself has never really encountered before, where we cannot be physically in a space together and and play for an audience. And and I think the 
the creativity that's come out of that has been amazing and and the recognition by a lot of people that um you can make something that is is powerful and a complete work of art you know for this but it needs to be for this you don't make it the same way you made for you know the concert hall uh, right. and that that process yeah. has become really really interesting to me as i've had lots of hours alone in my living room playing the flute by myself um, <laughs> so i just I, I i absolutely loved that aspect of it but uh, talk a little bit if you would um you know more generally about about how technology is part of your compositional process. Cause I find this fascinating too. I mean, I've talked to a lot of composers over my career. Obviously we've had a couple of composers um, on, on this podcast and especially when they're people I know well, people whose music I know well, when I start learning a little bit more about how they actually physically uh, write their music, most often now it includes technology somewhere along the chain as a tool. It explains so much about how their music sounds, the way that they actually write it. So mm. I'm curious what that process is like for you more generally. It's, you know, as you say, technology occurs at some point along the chain for everybody. And I think that's, you know, people in their 80s, people in their 20s, like this is this is what's going on. I think that as long as you treat technology no matter where it is in the process as a tool and as an instrument almost in your compositional process um you're going to be fine and i think whether or not that's writing electronic music or you know using sibelius or whatever but the thing the thing that i always say and so I, I don't really teach but when i do something that i say especially to to younger composers is that the issue with notation software is that you're already writing in time you're already it's you open it up and it's like here's a bar four four with a bunch of rests in it. So so already you've got this bizarre grid that I think can be really limiting. So you have to force Sibelius to to do what you want, not to kind of fit your thing into its phrase structure. So number one, number two, for me, you know, I've I've written electronic music. I've written music that incorporates electronics. You know, it's never not. A nightmare. It's like working with a very, very difficult soloist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I love it and hate it. And you know, I, my for instance, my friends who who write beautiful music that involves like max patches or whatever, I think half of their life is spent arguing with the software <laughs> and updating pieces from two years ago into you know contemporary. And 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 inevitably, what it is, it's like a piece for solo flute with like a little bit of reverb on it. You know what I mean? And and maybe you know, and <laughs> so. I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I think, I think, you know, just speaking kind of generally, like as long as, as long as you're really, really explicit about you, that you're, you're driving the car and the car isn't driving you. I'm curious, Nico, because um, you talked a bit earlier about not having done a ton of composing during this, this time. And um, when, when this commission came up, but generally speaking, when you're writing music, what percentage of the time are you writing commissions versus just works of your of your own initial mm. initiation? Um, like a hundred percent commissions? I mean, but but you know it's a, it's an interesting question because I think that's not quite true. Uh, so I have two categories of music, right? There's music for friends and music for strangers. <laughs> and music for friends is like the stuff that I've been writing from, you know, from when I was at Juilliard, like colleagues there, you know, so the violist Nadia Sarota, like I just write for her a bunch of stuff. But now that I'm older and slightly more august, <laughs> um, you can turn something that you want to write into a commission, right? So Nadia and I have been forever saying, or had been forever saying, like at some point, you know, I've written you almost an hour of solo viola music. Wouldn't that be great if we could get someone to commission a concerto? And then you kind of ask your publishers, like, who wants to commission a viola concerto? And they're like, okay, these three orchestras want to commission a viola concerto. And then you're like, okay, cool. So that's something where it starts as music for friends and ends up as music for strangers. I, I, I write a lot of sacred music, which oftentimes is just me, like, answering an email. And they're like, do you want to write a motet for whatever? And then I say, yeah, fine. And then, you know, if they find money, that's great or not or whatever. It's more of a tithe. Um but then there's, I think, yeah, it's 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 basically everything is everything is is commissioned. There, there I, I made these albums a couple years ago. There's this thing called Mother Tongue, and like those things were studio driven things of mine, um, which I need to get back to. I just haven't had the headspace to do it because I've had so much random stuff to do and like these giant operas and all this <laughs> all this other stuff. Um, 
anyway, and answer is I wish I had more more opportunity to do like self driven stuff, which is kind of the opposite of what a lot sure. of composers say. But but it it's you know I don't know a, a good a good problem to have for for solo flute and electronics. <laughs> so I I have to admit I did a little bit of uh, Google stalking of you uh, prior to our conversation. Finally. I know, right? It's about time <laughs> I got around to it. Thank you. Uh, you know, I was slow to the party, but. Uh, uh, I, I saw this really uh, interesting video you did where you were you were kind of talking about this a little bit. You you uh, you used the word you know for different types of music you write. You said you know some of some of my music is is practical music, uh, and I forget the other word that you used. Uh, impractical or impractical. <laughs> but anyway, where, where I'm going with this is is you also uh, talked about how you write ringtones for friends. Sometimes. Sure, yeah. What? Yeah, I, I, I would love to hear more about that. <laughs> I will, if you'd remind me, I'll, I'll email them to you if you have iPhones. No, I mean, so honestly, it's like, I mean, it's sort of a joke, but it's sort of not. Like, I, you were surrounded by involuntary music, right? And it's like the trash that you hear on MSNBC with like, you know, MIDI Piccolo announcing the kind of patriotic election coverage da, or, da, 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 you know, it's, da, da, da. yeah, exactly. And whatever maniacs do a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, you know, incidental music is just terrible. Like if you think about something as simple as, you know, if you've ridden a train in France in the last 10 years, there's this beautiful little thing that happens when, right before they make the announcements, um, you know, saying next stop is Lyon or whatever, you know, the, the noise that it makes when the, when the doors close in the subway, like, you know, if you, if you go through your day and, and listen to how much music you're involuntarily subjected to, um, you know. And, and I think as a as a composer, like it's kind of fun to think about how I can what what if what if I started thinking about about taking that over. Another thing I did this is maybe eight years ago, but the New York Times uh, asked me to write the chime before when you press play in a video. So there'd be this chord, literally just a little chord, and then the video. And that was actually one of the most fascinating things I've ever done in my entire life because they were like, okay. This chord has to play before a, a video about like Darfur mm. and a video about Fashion Week, and it has to be appropriate for both. And that mm. was so interesting, realizing the the power of har- not even harmony because it wasn't even relative to anything. It was just a chord. You know what's what is the the makeup of that sonority and you know notes of which we only have twelve, where you know war crimes and and fashion week can coexist in a in an environment. Anyway, so the moral of the story is I, I think that it's a good thing for composers to to think about what's happening to your music, particularly in non-concert contexts. Um, and again, going back to sacred music, you know, one of the great things about writing sacred music is that it happens at weird times of day. So if you write, for instance, a motet that happens, you know, at, for um, let's say you know Whit Sunday for Pentecost. That thing, will, you will hear it a maximum of a time a year mm-hmm. at 1140 in the morning on a Sunday, right? And that's it. And when that's happening, no one claps. No one cares that who you are. No one cares if you're there or not. There's no, there's no you know, there's no, like, drinks reception. <laughs> um, and what there is instead is is the idea that what the composer has done is created something that's, that's akin to, let's say... Um, sacred architecture right where the point isn't that you're saying listen to this listen to this but that you're that you're in an environment that encourages people to look upwards or whatever so it it's it's that's i think is the origin story for all the other stuff and i you know i'm I'm constantly i'm constantly begging um i'm like always tweeting at chris hayes being like let me write the music you can't make me listen to this (laughs) like i'm not kidding as recently as like literally 24 hours ago um probably gonna have me arrested That's amazing so <laughs> anyway moral of the story is if, if there are any composers listening to this like think about applications for your music that are outside of the concert hall now that we're not allowed concerts like we may as well be running ringtones do you know i i love that you said that too because uh you you tweet that i um not this year but in every election that i voted in it since living in kansas city so i've been here for 10 years the polling place that i go to is it, huge. I mean, a ton of people are in this are in these precincts at where I where I vote, and it is so the the way they organize it is so 
ridiculous. And every time I vote, I'm like, just let me organize it. Like, I will come in here and organize Mm -hmm. it for you because I organize Mm -hmm. concerts for children for a living. Like, if I can get 3,000 kids in and out of the Kauffman Center without anyone crying or getting lost or, you know, whatever, I can organize your voting. Like, I've written letters. No, listen... (laughs) I, listen, I, you know, on a smaller scale, by the way, I, we just, we all just have to con- admit here that my dog is just going to snore through this whole interview and that's just <laughs> that's what's right. up. Um, so I'm not, I, I was going to apologize, but no, I, it's great. I, no name. I'm too old for that. So, so, but, you know, it's funny. I, I, I live in London like half the year and a couple years ago where, where I was living, maybe eight years ago was across from, you know, one of those doom Starbucks where it's like, there can be no one in there and still everything takes 10 minutes. Like I, I lived across from the doom bucks and it is. At a certain point, I was like, I'm here every day before I get on the on the tube. Why don't I just do a staff training? Like, because, okay, trust and believe that the women who work on the Starbucks at 36 and 6th Avenue, like, they can have 7,000 people in and out of there in two seconds. Right? Like, do you know what I mean? And it's like, it's like efficiency to me is like quite erotic, which actually in a weird way, let's connects me back to, to that piece through line, which is like heaven for me is like being in a location where everyone's doing what they're meant to be doing really, really well. And that orchestra was really like that. And the surprise was that the, that the musicians were incredibly amenable to working in this bizarre way. Um, and which you can't expect, you can't expect an orchestra player to jump into this kind of filmic way of working and having that be cool. And literally not one person had a complaint about it. Everyone was like, oh, okay, let me do that again. Oh, okay, let me like pitch that a little higher. Like it was it was as if they'd been doing it this way the whole time. So that that to me was so thrilling. And again, similarly, it's like you can't expect, you know, stage management to rewrite a stage plot in two seconds because we need like a, you know, a dolly thing for the camera, whatever it is. So in that sense, this piece became both, you know, an artistic endeavor, but also it also a kind of fugue on on practicalities of the orchestral world. And I think, you know, like, I'm not going to lie. I I think that there's going to have to be some, some hashtag tough conversations about how we organize concerts, Mm -hmm. you know, in this, in this way. And like, you know, what the unions are going to have to negotiate about, is it a broadcast? Like, is it a recording? Mm -hmm. Is it, a soloist if you're the only if you're the piccolo player like you know there's so many questions like that and and i i hope that what happens is that management and and the unions can kind of get together and arrive at some kind of place that that allows for not just com- not just not a compromise isn't even what i'm saying but but improvisation as these conditions mm-hmm. um worsen ameliorate you know wh- wh- whatever whatever happens uh, it's gonna it's gonna be intense. I don't know what's happening in, in your organization, but but you know in San Francisco, I mean this is not not a secret. Like they were doing a union uni negotiation at that time. Yeah. Like we were, <laughs> we were literally doing. You know, I'm I'm like giving downbeats and conducting in five eight and, and and upstairs. You know, it's just something. It's something so crazy to me. And we're all we're all have we all have to get our lives together. <laughs> I was actually, as you were talking about that, I was thinking back to earlier in our conversation, I was thinking not only, but particularly an orchestra like San Francisco, if any orchestra is going to take on a project like this and do it so well, it's an orchestra like San Francisco. You know, MTT with his vision with that orchestra for 25 years, and now Esapeka being there, I mean, you're talking about two people that are trailblazers and people that are do think outside of the box. And I think this whole idea of eight collaborative partners all coming from different backgrounds mm-hmm. with different skill sets is really genius. And, uh, you know, you, 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 just, you just mentioned some of the things that we're dealing with now. And as you said, things could get worse. And hopefully we continue to improvise and continue to put out great art. But where do you see the future of music? And do you think this will change you as a composer on the other side of COVID? I know that's kind of hard to predict. But do you think this is a moment for orchestras to reflect and say, how can we oh, yeah. change in the future for the better and keep offering some of these things even after COVID is done? I mean, yes. But, you know, it's fu- it's funny you should say, and I, I, I appreciate that, that you know, we're, we all do the same thing, right? We're all in the same, we're all in the same boat. However, something that I've, I've learned is that there are some things which are not mine to opine on. 
And how to run an orchestra is not one of those things. And one of the great luxuries of being a composer is I don't need to think about that. <laughs> Just because the minute you start thinking about it, you your head explodes, right? Where it's like, why can't I have 10 more minutes with the trombone section? Like, mm -hmm. you know, why can't we not use 15 people? Like, you know, or why, who's this random substitute? Like, you know, there, there are so many things, there are so many things that about the like logistics of running an orchestra that I find so mysterious and so crazy that I kind of love that I it's not my problem. Um, and I know I, I don't and I don't mean to sound flip, but it's like, you know, I think people who run orchestras, whether or not they're a music director or, you know, CEOs or people who run opera companies, I, I think that's like the world's most difficult job, because no matter what you do, it's going to be wrong. No matter what you do, the whole internet is like, you suck. And, you know, so it's, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I hope there's some soul searching and I hope that I hope that everyone figures out how to use technology and how to reapply their skills uh in into i i, I don't know it's re, it's a re, it's a really hard question and i think you know a lot of it is going to have to happen he, here's here's an ugly conversation right you can teach composition over the internet kind of like how we're doing without it feeling really messed up more or less however the difference between for instance teaching an orchestral score to a student if they just have a laptop that's like, you know, however many inches that is, and you can't see the entire score at the same time. You can, literally can't look at an orchestra score on a laptop. So then you think, okay, well, is the expectation now that composers should buy, you know, 27-inch IMAX? Or is the expectation that we should go back to printed scores? And so suddenly you have this this additional question about money, right? And you can teach the violin over Zoom if someone has a $900 microphone, $2,000 microphone, but you can, can you expect someone who doesn't have such a microphone to get one? So it, it, all these are other serious conversations where it's like, how do we teach recording fluency without it turning into a literal conversation about money? And so there's so many things like that, that I think, you know, need to be addressed on the absolute most basic level, you know, of what are we supposed to do? Like send ORF instruments to every child in the country? You know, it's like, there's, it's, I mean, but good question. Yeah. You know, I mean, I would go to that concert, by the way. And <laughs> can you imagine awesome. like just the Schulwerk? Like, oh my God, you know what? I'm going to write that down. Um, <laughs> so, like every, every metallophone, like this side of the Euphrates. So anyway, so yes, the answer is everyone's got to, everyone's got to learn stuff again and everyone's going to have to figure out um, how to do it. But interestingly, like people are pretty resilient. Like, you know, I've been teaching a bit at Juilliard and some students are like, yeah, whatever. I'm at home in Seoul. I'm going to get up at three o'clock in the morning. We're going to do this masterclass. I bought like an okay microphone and here we go. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> so anyway, I, I, but yes, I'm, I'm very, very glad I don't have to tell an orchestra what to do. Going back to San Francisco, you're right, because MTT also had this overlap with um, New World. And so Clyde, who was one of the um, kind of designers of how the video system worked, was, um, came from New World. Right, which is a very technologically integrated orchestral environment, made possible, I think, by the fact that it's you know students rather than pe people who are all kind of more or less the same age. The thing with San Francisco, as you say, it's like the technical brain trust and the and you know the the fact of us just all being kind of uh, in some way imp being able to kind of structurally improvise a life. Um, I think was was incredibly serendipitous, like the fact that. You know, Bryce just happens to live next door to Katian Maria Labec in, you know, instead of Biarritz. The fact that, you know, Pekka can just like waltz into basically any room, <laughs> any room in the world and make his fiddle sound great. You know, there's, there's a lot going on. I mean, it's, yes, huh. <laughs> it's all going to be so crazy. Well, Nico, this has been an incredible conversation and, uh, you know, we could, we could sit here for hours, but, uh, but there's important business to attend to. And we have, we have two questions which are required uh, in the bylaws. It's binding uh, in your formal contract. If you read the fine print, we have to uh, have you answer these questions. Uh, he looks no, really nervous. I know he looks nervous. So that's, that's why I'm, that's why I'm milking this. Um, but, uh, but number one, so this podcast, as you know, is called Beethoven walks into a bar. And these questions are, are related closely to that. Number one is what is your favorite beverage? of choice, either alcoholic, non-alcoholic, and closely related to that, if you were to enjoy such a beverage at a relaxing venue, a watering hole with Mr. Ludwig von Beethoven, 
what might you ask Beethoven? What's one pressing question as a composer, as Nico sure. Mealy, that you want to ask him? That's a very, I, this is an acceptable question. <laughs> I, I, I am a big fan of a Negroni, and I like Ooh, them very, uh, very bitter. I usually make them with Chinar rather than Campari. Nice. Um, number one. Number two, you know, with Beethoven, I want to know, I, w- I would ask him, what is going on structurally in the last three piano sonatas? And I want to understand if if he were to zoom out and draw them out as shapes, what would that look like? Because I, I, you know, I know those those sonatas incredibly well, and I still have no idea what's going on in terms of how big the room is that I'm in, what the structure of the room is. It it really feels like something so far advanced, even though it's within the confines of a you know theme and variations, for instance, in Opus One Eleven. So my question would be, how would you draw the shape of those? pieces of music <laughs> a fine question and interestingly uh, i mean i'm i'm being silly right now but to to say seriously i mean we we asked this question um and we have had a number of questions which all kind of relate to this idea of structure in mm-hmm. beethoven and and how he you know wrestled with his pieces uh in that way so i i think it's a really interesting one well um we always we always close with a little recommended listening and uh, I'm going to take the easy layup here and recommend that everyone go watch through line. We'll put the link to it in the show notes. It's uh, what is it? The whole, the whole gala video was, it's like an hour, but it's mine about is, an hour, but yeah, through lines, maybe 20 minutes. Mine's like ni- 19 yeah. minutes long or eight. Watch the whole gala long. video. But if you only have 19 minutes, watch through line. It is uh it is one of the most incredible things. And and I would say to, you know, don't watch it on your phone on the subway or while you're riding in a car, you know, put on headphones, yeah, get, get big. put it on the biggest screen you have and, and watch it in a place without distractions because it's, it's truly um, an artistic experience, both sonically, visually, just watch it, do it, listen to me now do it <laughs> really really incredible um absolutely thank you that's very sure. kind um i'm not giving recommended listening this week well maybe i will in in the second part of it i'm going to give a recommended reading this this week so when before the show um i was doing a little little reading about nico and i stumbled on your website and then found my way to your blog and so i would i would recommend the blog as a whole but um in particular your blog um about thoughts on being well mm-hmm. um and you talk about mental wellness and mental health it's an incredible read something that i absolutely uh it resonated with me very personally and i think would a lot of people and uh i definitely recommend a read of that because it it was it a really great read, and I think a lot of people would get a lot out of it. Thank you. Um, but along that, so so maybe maybe uh, Nico can help me out a little bit because in that you reference Benjamin Britten's "Rejoice in the Lamb" mm-hmm. as one of your go-to favorite pieces. So, do you have a favorite recording of that Britten that you want to recommend to to us, or should we just? You know, th- that's a very interesting question. So, you know, how do I put this? One realizes that one's favorite recordings sometimes have a much more emotional attachment mm-hmm. than than like a musical one in a way. Mm-hmm. So the one that I, the one that I the one that I grew up with um, is the is the uh, King's College under Cleobury. So I'm not sure what year that was out, but it was when Argo Records still existed. So mm-hmm. you know. In the past, um, there's an excellent, excellent, excellent one by uh, St. John's College, Cambridge, under Christopher Robinson. I think probably there's an absolutely bizarre one that Britton himself conducted uh, as part of that. Uh, you know, that's that's paired with Saint Nicholas, which I also like a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's funny because because it, again, it's like it doesn't really. I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but that's a piece of music that you know the the way that I referenced it in in this blog which is which is a kind of me coming to terms with you know a, a really basic fact of you know being bipolar which is neither here nor there but but kind of reckoning with that as it relates to medication as it relates to being an artist as it relates to being a human being as it relates to being a kind person you know all of which gets to, not to use the musical term but it gets fugued when you don't know what's going what way is up What's great about that piece, the, the Britain piece, is that it sets the text by Christopher Smart, who is a, a poet who himself was in a, a mental institution, and it oscillates between 
this ecstatic kind of jazzy uh, rhyme scheme, and then these very, very um, kind of uh, pastoral um, sense of of tranquility and and mm-hmm. and peace. And you know, of course, it, it it was something that was very moving to me as a young as a kid when you sing it because it's so thrilling and so great. And then it's something that's I've carried with me through my whole life. And there's there's just a moment at the end of it which is just extraordinary what Britain does with it. Um, it says, and at that time, malignity ceases uh, and the devils themselves are at peace and the stillness and serenity of soul. It's just, it's like the most exquisite music. Um, and so it doesn't matter what recording you have. It You can have, you, you know, you can listen to uh, any of them. And I think it'll still, it'll still hit you um, where it counts. Hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Well, earlier we were talking about Throughline and how uniquely composed it is for a certain situation uh, with a certain instrumentation. And I was um, listening to and researching a lot of your other music in preparation for our conversation today. And I was fascinated uh, by the instrumentation of one of your pieces that you wrote in 2011, 2012, which is Gate, G-A-I-T. Oh, sure, which yeah. You wrote, which you wrote uh, on a commission from uh, the BBC for the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain. Yep. And there's a fantastic uh, recording of it on YouTube with that orchestra. Um, And what fascinated me about it was that it called for like seven flutes and seven bassoons with three of them playing (laughs) contrabassoon and 10 (laughs) horns and eight trumpets and four harps and three tubas. And I thought- I just do what I'm told. (laughs) What the heck? Who? This piece is crazy. I got to go check it out. And of course, that was the instrumentation of that ensemble. Right. And you wrote very individual parts, almost soloistic parts within each section to kind of represent the different styles of gates, perhaps, of of various- um, Of animals, yeah. Animals, yeah. So- Definitely check out that piece too. Yeah, really. (laughs) I I should say, just Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. You should say about that gate. You know, it's for a youth orchestra, and you know, youth orchestras. We we've all we've all dealt with it, and it's like you want to feel you want to feel included. And if you're like you know, clarinet sixteen or whatever, um, I think it's nice to have your own lick, right? Yeah, I think it'll uh, mean something more. And interestingly, the actual first piece of music I wrote during lockdown is one of the cellists in that um who has the most extraordinary name which is leo popplewell um you know on, only in england uh so it's turned since now he's i don't know his early 20s fantastic cellist really really great pianist and he had been doing these little kind of videos from his i suppose his parents house um and learning a piece of music, memorizing it, recording it the next morning and putting it on YouTube. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to write him a piece of music. So the actual first thing I wrote during during this hell hole of a time was a little piece for Leo. And I think that's that was a nice thing for me too. There's this continuity of, you know, you work with someone when they're 17 and then they turn into colleagues later. And I think that's what's so, so great about working with youth orchestras is that you can kind of if you do if you do your job well, there'll be a generation of young musicians who who are inclined to think kindly on you. That's interesting you say that because um, I conducted a youth orchestra before coming here to Kansas City, the Louisville Youth Orchestra, and now one of my colleagues in the Kansas City Symphony that I get to work with, uh, Adam Rainey, our bass trombone player. Um, I got to work with him as a student, and now I get to work with him as an exceptional colleague. So I know exactly what it's you're the best. About. It's the it's it really is it, it's a it's a a very special three-dimensional feeling. <laughs> May I just say too that um, it, it, I believe this being written for youth orchestra. Um, when when you say that um, symphony administration is something that you don't do and that you you know that's not your problem. <laughs> when you started saying like seven flutes and oh my god, <laughs> I just oh my god. I, like being on the administrative side of an orchestra. <laughs> I started having a little anxiety attack. Like how would <laughs> like just well, imagining girl, personnel you hear managers something crazy. <laughs> Because in in the UK they can drink, the children can drink. So you have the older ones. It was something. So can you imagine? So I and at one point one of the cellists, like this, you know, super kind of adorable cellist, sort of trotted up to me and said, "Oh, you know, the cello section thinks that you and the other uh, com- composers, Anna Meredith, should come out to drinks with us." You know, and we went to some really, really like doomed Weatherspoons or something in the outskirts of Birmingham, and. And you realize, like, this is this is where you learn how to binge drink, right? The children were given two hours, just go for it. And <laughs> I, they were drinking, like, you know, 
those horrible like green and red things that are just syrup and grain alcohol and you just think you know this is really something else and then they get up the next morning and do Shostakovich it's just like it, it was some it was but I will say probably one of the most moving one one of the more moving moments of my life was that the last concert that they or the second to last concert they did was at Snape Maltings which is where the Britain the Britain Peers um, Foundation is and it's where you know Britain lived and and uh, wrote a lot of work based on that landscape, including, you know, of course, Peter Grimes and and uh, Curly River. Um, and there was a moment, like, between the dress rehearsal and the concert, and it was that unbelievably beautiful sort of crepuscular moment in, in the UK. And there are these rushes that lead from the, from the concert hall, these wonderful rushes through a kind of marshy thing. And there's a little church at a place called Icon all the way on the other side. And seeing these kids you know it felt it felt had that energy of like the last day of camp right it was the last night they were all going to be mm. together and seeing them running through that landscape in little pairs was just some, one of the most moving kind of tableau because it really did feel like there was this kind of you know the 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 ancientness of the place and the connection to britain and his music for for younger people and like this mm. this kind of tingling moment of you know kind of why we do this and this, this, the sense of of, of continuity—it's kind of emotional and musical—and I felt just really, really, really lucky to be uh, a part of that at that time. Um, and again, one doesn't necessarily always get those those same tingles if you go and you know work at the, like the Philharmonie in, in Berlin, for instance, because it's like we're all super professional and we're going to do this in exactly this way, and 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 you know it's going to be awesome. Whereas with the youth orchestra, there's always this element of of um, fizz to it i didn't get to drink in youth orchestra i really i should go <laughs> i should go to british youth orchestra i mean that man those tubists could throw down too <laughs> <laughs> all right well nico wow. do you have i know we talked about the uh, the britain uh do you have anything you'd like to recommend our listeners check out yeah um i've been in a on a big kind of early music kick these days I think everyone should be listening to uh, the Talis scholars singing Josquin. Uh, it just came. Uh, so there's a, a CD from probably, I don't know, 2006 or so. But the Talis scholars singing Josquin is really, really great. I've had it kind of on repeat. I also have been going back to, um, I've, I've regressed. I don't know if anyone else is finding this, that you're going back to music that you that you loved, like, 10 years ago and you don't stop loving it, but it's still there. Um, when is the last time you listened to Graceland? Mm. That is good. And we should all be listening to that all the time. Well, Nico, I am so glad that you and Mike played in a chamber music ensemble together 25 plus years ago. Because Me too. <laughs> this was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. My absolute, yeah. absolute pleasure. So it's very nice not to look at the blank page <laughs> for at least a couple <laughs> hours. <laughs> This is really awesome. Thank you so much. I don't know about you guys, but nothing quite says the holidays are here like music. Next week, we talk with two of our incredible colleagues here at the Symphony, Associate Principal Horn David Sullivan and Assistant Music Librarian Fabrice Curtis. David and Fabrice have been hard at work putting together a musical advent calendar that features virtual musical performances every day throughout the month of December. We talk with them about their 25 Days of KCS project, how they've stayed busy throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, and some of their more interesting interests and hobbies. Think bugs, fish, and plants. Next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. <laughs>